Hi, this is your host, Becky Sanders. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we discuss healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, we're talking with Lindsay Reese, an infectious disease physician here in the Indianapolis area. Lindsay, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Becky, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I am an infectious disease physician that works predominantly at the Indianapolis VA, seeing patients and also kind of co-owned by Indiana University, where I do a lot of my telemedicine work. And I also work within the Department of Medicine as their Associate Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs. So I'm able to do some administrative work specifically with quality and population health within that department. Well, that's quite a variety of hats that you wear. Yeah, my career has kind of taken paths to touch all of those things. I've finally gotten the opportunity to kind of synthesize things and it's really fun. So when I was doing some research for this podcast, I saw that your college career actually started out at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, and then you got your MD at Indiana University. But how did your time at Notre Dame shape the rest of your collegiate experience? Notre Dame is fantastic. It's an incredible institution. But apparently, according to my dad, they had to actually wheel a TV into the delivery room when my mom was having me so my dad could watch the Notre Dame football game. And so I was going to that college from the day I was born. My brother preceded me there. We went to public schools, so we were always public school kids. Went to a small school in Auburn, Indiana, DeKalb High School with about 250 kids. Graduated top of my class and followed my brother there. And we were one of the first kids from that school to go to the University of Notre Dame. I actually was gonna be an attorney From when I was in fifth grade, I had a Harvard Law School sweatshirt that I wanted to wear on picture day. That's what I was going to do. I went through Notre Dame as a psychology major and a computer applications major, which is odd. I can like a whiz with Excel. But for some reason, that's what my brother did. And so I kind of was following along in that path and thought, you know, I'm going to take the LSATs, the entrance exams. I did that. I did okay on them. I was going to either go to Notre Dame Law or potentially Michigan. And then senior year in 96 was when Rent came out. It was a play written by Jonathan Larson about the AIDS epidemic and how it impacted New York City. And I went to see that. And that was actually the year that the protease inhibitors came out. So before that time, people that had HIV would be on kind of sequential therapy. They got AZT and then AZT didn't work. And they went on to another drug and to another drug and to another drug. And we saw a lot of people die, unfortunately. And and in 96, the protease inhibitors as a drug class came out and people started to survive. And that was the same year that that musical came out. And so I saw a musical and decided that I was going to be a physician and that I was going to take care of people with HIV. I think that it was not only the disease itself, but also the stigma and the social implications that came with it that was something that I really felt like I was drawn to. So I told my parents and they said, we love you and we're not paying for it. (laughs) So so went back senior year at Notre Dame, took chemistry classes. And then the day after I graduated from Notre Dame, I went back to school. I cried all the way there because I was like, I just graduated and I'm this day after I'm going back. And I went to Indiana, Purdue, Fort Wayne, IPFW. And I did my classes to take the MCATs. And I did that in two years, took the medical school entrance exams, and then wound up in Indiana University, another fantastic school. So very lucky to kind of finally get to that path. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Two years and you were ready to take your MCATs? Yeah. You know, I That's didn't do, dedication. <laughs> I probably didn't score as well as I could have, but I think the background from Notre Dame, I did a lot of service there and that was appealing to the university and they liked kind of that well-rounded type of non-traditional graduate. And so we're very willing to take a chance. And I was able to get match into my first choice for residency coming out of that program. Wow, that's amazing. So was Mount Sinai then your choice for residency? You know, when I visited there, I was like, there's no way that I'll ever be able to live in New York. Mount Sinai is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So it's right by Central Park. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's like, it's no one can live there, right? It's just so amazing. When I went there, the chairman of medicine and the program director meet with the residencies every day. They present cases to these administrative people and they listen to these cases and they give feedback and they ask you questions. And, and right when I walked in, he knew my name and he asked me about Indiana and his wife had been to Notre Dame and, and there was just kind of this very cool connection and they accepted me there. And I stayed there for three years and then stayed an additional year to do a chief resident year, which is a year for teaching and in education, and then ended up staying on two extra years for fellowship for infectious disease. The we have, they have a community hospital out there called Elmhurst, and it's in Queens, and it sits right by LaGuardia. So people will come off the plane with all types of tropical illnesses. So from an infectious disease standpoint, it's probably some of the best training that you can get as an infectious disease physician. So very lucky to be able to train there. It's very difficult. And uh, we've heard their name a lot, I think, in our current COVID crisis, and they really have led the way in treating a lot of patients and uh, heading a lot of research. So I'm very proud to be trained by the institution. So then you've come full circle kind of back to Indiana. How did that happen? Yeah, I had I had kids. <laughs> so when I was in New York, I had my first of three boys. So I have uh, finally a junior high boy, and I have two still in elementary school. As much as I love New York, it's incredibly difficult to raise kids there outside of having family close by and, and some resources for childcare. So we also kind of decided we wanted to be closer to our parents and to grandparents. And so I had my first boy out there and then came back and joined Infectious Disease of Indiana, which is a private practice associated with St. Vincent's. And it's a great practice, just great teaching great clinical work, had a second boy when I was there, and then kind of decided that I needed more predictability to my day. I loved what I did, but I couldn't predict whether or not I was going to make it home for dinner. And so in, when you have little kids like that, it's something that I felt like I was missing some things. And so decided to move over to the university, just try to get into some academic medicine where I would have some more predictability and they couldn't hire me. They didn't have a division chief at that time. And so the acting chief, Dr. Battinger, who we just lost to one cancer, is a big mentor of mine, took my resume over to Dr. Souter, who was the chief of medicine at the VA, who hired me on as an infectious disease physician and an assistant chief of medicine. I had never been an administrator, and I suddenly got kind of thrown into this VA administration and this clinical work, I ended up being their hospital epidemiologist um, and had a ton of fantastic opportunities there. Started growing programs in telemedicine for our rural veterans to be able to get care in their communities. And eventually took over for Dr. Souter as the chief of medicine and really got to have a lot of administrative experiences before I moved on to do some additional work at the university. 
I made that transition for various reasons, but I wanted to see more patients. I wanted to be able to see patients outside of the VA. I wanted to do more outreach. And so I moved into the associate vice chair role in the department where I do pop health and I do quality. So I look at prevention for large groups of patients, right? So large, large populations. But then I also became the director of telemedicine in IU and I, I do these outreach clinics in HIV and Hep C and PrEP, HIV prevention. Sometimes you'll see just a couple patients every time that you're able to connect with and engage with and get on medicines. And so it's interesting to me. I sometimes feel so ineffective in that role. And then I'm in this big pop health role. So it's kind of a cool dichotomy to be over quality on such a big level and then to try kind of on the individual level to really get down to some of these patients that have so many social determinants. I kept a lot of my clinical work at the VA too, so I still get to, get to care for the vets who are by far some of my favorite patients to to care for. Wow, that's an amazing story. I can empathize. We had our first child in Chicago and then came back to Indiana, to the Indianapolis area to be closer to family because it was not like New York, but in, in right. its own way, you know, no support system and not really a good place to raise a family. So, right. But it really, the dichotomy of the administrative work and the patient care that you do, that must be very fulfilling. Yeah, I like both. The VA is one of the most transparent healthcare systems that we have. I think a lot of times the criticism that comes from some of the press is is really transparency. We are going to put out there exactly what we're doing and how we're succeeding or maybe not doing so well in certain areas. And they are by far leading in so many quality indicators. I did a ton of metrics, quality related things, patient experience, mortality, length of stay, all these things when I was at the VA and actually transferred that over to the Department of Medicine. And I, I love that stuff. And so I get to look at our net promoter scores, how are patients ranking us? What are our harm events look like? Some of the things that I had some experience in, in doing in the VA, but I'm still able to do on the university side and be able to see the differences between a small medical center and a huge system. It's very fun to be able to do both, but I am an absolute clinician at heart. And so I love to see patients and I love to teach. I also just recently have gotten involved a little bit with the School of Medicine. And because of all the new telemedical work that we're doing, they were feeling that the students weren't really prepared to do this. And so we're looking at the curriculum and trying to add in some didactics on how to do telemedicine visits, such as do they have digital professionalism or are you pausing to allow people to talk? Are you looking at the camera? It's just amazing, you know, how I've been able to kind of be part of different pieces of this complex medical center, but it all kind of comes together into a nice package. At the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center, we've had real opportunities recently to work with academic medical centers to help integrate more telehealth didactic presentations because it wasn't previously part of the student curriculum. And I think it's going to be very beneficial for these students as they achieve their degrees and go on to that next step. You were talking about your time when you started at the VA. So you guys were actually doing telehealth way before the pandemic happened, right? Right. Before it was popular. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, it was interesting. I had a couple grants that I got when I was there through rural health that really were looking at being able to continue to offer specialty care in the communities where the patient 
this living. And so the the VA is is I mean you can you can picture it. It's hard for some of these veterans that live in rural communities to drive in and then try to find out where the parking is and how to get to where they're supposed to be and where's the pharmacy. And it's so overwhelming. I often have veterans that get there two, three hours beforehand and the anxiety, their blood pressure is suddenly like 170 over 90, right? And so it is definitely an anxiety provoking experience for these veterans. And so we found that we are able to, what I did was I I kind of, I, I developed a lot of curriculum for our primary care docs and while controlled HIV can be as easy as a pill a day, and really their management becomes more primary care, right? And so they're dealing with what we all, you know, deal with, with diabetes and heart failure and cardiac disease and hypertension and all those things. And the HIV becomes easy. It's just the pill a day. And so we did a lot of educational things for primary care and some of these rural communities to be able to manage, you know, just basic HIV care throughout the year and then make sure that that when patients did come to see us that it was maybe just once or twice a year so they wouldn't have to have to come in frequently and then so we did kind of echo sessions with them which is more of a didactic session and then we developed our we called it CVT so clinical video telehealth where they would come into a neighboring clinic and do a telemedicine visit now we have something called VVC which is video telehealth which we can do in their homes and so a nice kind of option to be able to do both now but definitely has grown since the pandemic. It benefited us to have that experience because there was a lot of provider hesitancy because people just weren't familiar with the equipment, with how to engage with patients, you know, via telemedicine. It was scary. You know, you just don't know how to do it well. And we were, we had already done it, you know, several times. And so we're definitely at an advantage when we started to almost exclusively go that way during the the pandemic. Now, you mentioned ECHO. I'm certainly very familiar with ECHO programs, but our listeners might not be. Could you explain that a little bit? So the ECHO programs allow a didactic session to occur, a learning type of a session to occur between a, a specialty care doc and a group of listeners. So often like a primary care group. I've been involved with ECHO in a couple different ways. We'd had a hep C ECHO within the VA, which the primary care would send us cases of hep C, we would come up with a kind of an educational curriculum. We would present uh, basic management of hep C to primary care, and then we would run through some of their cases and kind of give examples of how we would manage those patients. So the goal would be that the primary care doctors would be able to retain care of their patients and be able to do this management by what they learned through this ECHO curriculum. I was involved with ECHO for nursing homes during COVID. It was me and and a geriatrician we would present a case and it would be the nursing home administration that would be on the other side. And they would have questions. We would have small groups. We'd have questions kind of going back and forth. They got some continuing education credit, but it was a way of offering information from a specialty group to a primary care group. So that way they can care for the patients within their establishment. I love hearing about telehealth programs that are involved with the residents in long-term care facilities because it just makes so much sense. I know there's been some policy issues and barriers and with COVID. Many of those went away. So we're still kind of fingers crossed that Medicare will continue a lot of those waivers even after the pandemic is over. I did want to go back to one other thing at the VA and see if you are willing to kind of make a little bit of a prognostication, if you will. So the VA providers like yourself 
can provide across state lines without worrying about compacts, without worrying about getting licensed in every state. Do you think that's ever going to come to the private payer world? I, I practiced telemedicine at the university side, but I, I didn't think about it, right? And so I remember joining one of our kind of healthcare disparities group in telemedicine and somebody talking about how you had to be careful about where you were, knowing where your patient was and how that was a limitation. You had to make sure that you were within the state. And I, I, I guess it never hit me that this was a privilege that we have at the VA. We can definitely cross state lines and we can offer care to a, a broader range of, of patients. Gosh, I don't know. I hope so. I feel like it really would be a benefit to some of these patients that have uh, very complex medical care that might have to travel to an academic center, which would be difficult for them to do given, you know, how debilitated they may be from their illness. And so I hope so. You know, I wish I could prognosticate it. I definitely had taken advantage of that when I when I was at the VA. Didn't didn't consider it being something that would be a barrier, but it, it is definitely something that I hope we can cross in the future because definitely would be a benefit to some of these patients. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure our listeners are waiting to hear how we're going to work COVID-19 and the pandemic more into this conversation. How has the field of infectious disease changed during this most recent pandemic? You can learn how to use antibiotics, right? And hospitalists can do that and intensivists can do that. We can carve out a niche in antimicrobial stewardship or you can carve out a niche in infection prevention. But suddenly we have emerging infectious pathogens, right? We saw it a little bit with Ebola and now we're, we're seeing it, you know, obviously with our current pandemic and it became very busy and basically kind of all consuming I think that the one thing that I have learned is that the amount of data and information and research that is constantly being regurgitated and constantly changing is just mind-boggling. Really, there is just so much to be able to retain. There's actually a study at ID Week last year that looked at the number of studies that were published on COVID, and there's no capacity to be able to read and retain anywhere close to that information. In our group, we broke it down into different segments. So we have somebody that does diagnostics and testing. We have somebody that does infection prevention and outbreaks. And then I do uh, treatment algorithms. And so I do more of the inpatient and outpatient management of COVID. I, I think that my field has changed just dramatically by its necessity and by the need to constantly stay up on this. It's been very overwhelming. I would say that we probably aren't your front line that I'm so grateful for, your hospitalists and ED staff that are taking care of these patients front line, but we're the people that are in the huddles that are talking about the treatment options and what to do next. There were the people that are discussing, you know, how to quarantine, when to test. And so having to be on top of all those things, I think has made our field very worthy, but also has made it much more complex and overwhelming uh, at times. And so I think that the vaccine and different things coming out with the monoclonal antibodies and things to keep people out of the hospital, hopefully we're going to be looking at a brighter future here by next year. It's a weird feeling for people to look at you for answers and to not be able to provide those or to provide an answer that is then no longer true two weeks later. It's difficult in a sense that people are looking at you as being the expert and then what you're saying is no longer relevant, Mm -hmm. you know, in in 10 days. I think that that has been a very difficult thing, very humbling, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, Yeah, I I experienced that myself when the pandemic 
you know, first started locking down in March and April of last year, we were getting so many questions flooding email, 800 line, personal email, um, you name it. And every day, policy kept changing. It was heartbreaking to realize I told them something that is now 24 hours no longer true. Right, right. And I think that's one of the most difficult things about this particular pandemic. So our mentors that were around when the HIV epidemic came and lived through that and they treated patients through that and they, you know, saw how that played out. And this is somewhat similar, right? It's interesting because those are the faculty that are patient and they're like, maybe we should wait and see what the trials say before we give everybody hydroxychloroquine. Maybe we should wait and see what the trials say before we give everyone tocilizumab. And so they, they're so patient. And then you've got, I consider myself kind of middle-aged faculty or younger faculty that are very much like, no, we have to offer everything that we can to treat these patients. We have to do everything that we can, you know, and I, I hope to someday be a patient physician. Because looking back at it, they were absolutely right. We wanted to help. We wanted to answer those questions. We wanted to make people better. But we didn't with some of those things, right? We actually caused harm with some of those things because we didn't wait and we didn't see what the research showed us. And it was really eye-opening for me to see these people that have already been through some of these experiences relive them in a very different way than my first reaction, which was, we have to do everything that we can. Yeah. I think that's good advice for all of us because we want to fix it right now. And society is becoming so quick and everything's right now. Right. And we can't wait five minutes for things to change or for the information to finish downloading or whatever. I wanted to touch on a couple other things. And first, I, I have to say, I love the musical Rent. Right. I, I'm jealous that you got to <laughs> see it favorite. in person on Broadway. Original yeah. cast, too. I oh, think I saw the original cast. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that I, is amazing. If I could get that back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask one more thing with the VA. If you could be the person making decisions for the many veterans that we have, and, and I know we have a lot here in the state of Indiana in comparison to other states. What would you do to end veteran homelessness in the state of Indiana? I have worked with and know very well the lead who used to be the chief of social work and then has kind of moved over to the head of the homeless vet program. Doing what I do and seeing the patients that I see that have sometimes addiction issues and some issues, obviously, social determinants. And I have several patients that are homeless. They don't have the resources that they need to be able to secure employment. They maybe are struggling with mental health related issues, or like I said, addiction issues. They're trying to get them to take medicines and they, they don't even know where they're going to sleep, right? What's more important to them is that they are driven by a craving that I can't understand. So the issues are so deep. I think finding out the root cause of the homelessness, whether that be struggles with mental health or struggles with addiction or struggles with poverty or, or whatever social determinants I think are important that are driving that, I think is incredibly important. And he does a lot of that work. He knows these people. He goes to the streets and he knows what they struggle with. I think that that's incredibly important because somebody like me who does not have the same struggles is not going to be able to tell you how to fix that, right? And so I think the way he operates and the way he operates his group which is to go directly to the veterans that are struggling 
and, and try to, to figure out the core of their issue, I think is incredibly important to get them services for addiction or services for mental health needs or whatever it is that they need. We also have in place a lot of institutions. We have something called the domiciliary. We have the, a veteran's home. We have a group of people that are looking at putting people in, I don't want to call them single room occupancies. They call them some other, they call them kind of group living or residential living. COVID has made that so tricky. But I think that along with trying to make sure that people have the resources to recover and to have a stable home, you have to be able to offer them voc rehab. They have to be able to have a pathway into financial stability. And then you have to be able to offer them housing. And so we, we do that very well with these residential homes, with our domiciliary, with our VA homes, with our vet house, all of these places. So I think that, you know, the combination of finding the root cause, trying to figure out what we can do on the basic level to help relieve some of these social determinants that people are struggling with, having the resources or a place for them to live, and then probably getting them back integrated into the workforce, I think is probably some of the key elements. You know, I don't want to speak for what they do. They do it so much better. I think that those things would be definitely top on my list of things to tackle for homelessness. Yeah, I, I think you hit it. Um, right on the head. And I'm very hopeful that this new public health task force that the state of Indiana has created will look into some of these issues. Historically, we've not been a state that spent a lot of money on public health. I do hope that that becomes a silver lining out of this pandemic. So one last question for you. I heard through a colleague that the State Department of Health here in the state of Indiana was looking at some of the numbers on COVID and was hoping that if the numbers kept trending the way they were, we might be done with what they're calling this fourth wave of the COVID pandemic, maybe by the end of the September. Have you heard that? Have you seen that in the data? Yeah, I've seen that. The prediction was that the spike would be following the Labor Day holiday and that the hospitals are typically a couple weeks behind. And so where they would spike up, you know, like you said, kind of now or at the end of September, I have heard the same promising news and looking at the trends. I'm hoping that bears to be true. So, um, yeah, so fingers crossed we're we're getting close to the end of this one. Yeah, fingers crossed. That That's very heartening to hear. Lindsay, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and thank you. talking through some of these things. It's been fascinating discussion. For our listeners, I want to thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, contact us at info at UMTRC or through the form found in the show notes below. Also, I'd like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast and to our awesome executive producer, Caroline Yoder, and also to Tristan Yoder, who has just joined us as our audio video editor. And finally, a special thanks to HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy or position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by, HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.